Life, Love, and the Grind is sponsored by Life, Love, and the Grind Limited, and to the extent applicable, their guests. The views and opinions expressed therein do not necessarily reflect those of News Web Radio Company or its management. Hey guys, thank you for joining us again this Sunday. Myself, Raza Siddiqui, and Sarah Sadat with you. Uh, Sean Allen remotely relaxing somewhere. We got a great show today filled with a lot of information that we want to get to. We have two important guests. Sarah, you want to tell us uh, who will be joining us today? Yeah, I'm Christine Stock. She's um, MD. She's a professor at of anesthesiology at Northwestern University. Um, she is an amazing person, has been spending the past 15 years of her life um, kind of training other people to kind of be amazing anesthesiologists. That is pretty much how come I, I have gotten to know her. Um, and then we also have Jeremy Ross, who is with CBS2. He's a TV reporter, and uh, he has been kind of talking to us lately about being out on the streets during um, these chaos, these movements, uh, the protests that are happening. So just being safe during those times. So I'm, and yeah, I'm, absolutely. And I, I know part of the discussion we have with Jeremy, along with Usher Qureshi, um, and a couple of security consultants was just talking about with the crowds. We've gone from a situation where we were just told to isolate, not be in contact with people, to situations where there's a, a mass amount of people together. And we just kind of want to go over, and we have gone over some of the safety measures um, that reporters were dealing with. But in a broader scheme, we want to talk to the doctor about what she's seeing um, at Northwestern regarding that. I mean, you you hear about this, Reza, all the time, about everybody being out and about we're kind of going into this phase three of Restore Illinois. What does that look like? I mean, we were told by the governor to kind of stay uh, limited to 10 people gatherings, but yet we have numerous protests and rightly so, because you know, the black community is, they're upset. They're upset in their own rights to uh, for all the different things that have happened to them historically in the past and continue to happen. So they want to see some legislative change coming through. So they're taking out to the streets to to form a positive message. While this is happening, masks are being put on sometimes, sometimes they're not being put on, right? Social distancing in a large gathering such as this doesn't normally happen. So we, we've invited Dr. Stock here um, and she would, she'll correct me to say Chris. So Chris is joining us today to kind of tell us a little bit about what she's seeing on the front lines, right? As she is um, working at the hospital at Northwestern, um, you know, she was there from the very beginning of the pandemic, um, providing critical care patients in the ICU, um, ventilators and all the other stuff. And again, I'm not a doctor, so I'm, you can't, I mean, don't quote me on what I'm saying as far as the medical treatments that she has been providing, but she has been there numerous times. So um, we, we love her insight and her update on this. So. So yeah, let's start, start with you, doctor. Uh, may I call you Chris as well, or is that a special course, privilege? That, so Chris, let me ask you this. Um, tell us a little about yourself. How long have you been with the Northwestern? Tell us about the scope of your work and what you've seen very recently. So I, um, I've been practicing for 35 years and I've been exclusively in academic practice. I was down at Emory for 15 years and now at Northwestern for 20. Um, I am an anesthesiologist and an intensivist, which means I take care of people in the intensive care unit. And the, the COVID epidemic has really um, put a huge stress on all of the intensive care units, the entire country, and the people who work there. Um, when we, our hospital actually did a spectacular job 
at um, increasing ICU capacity by changing some rooms that were not initially intended to be ICUs into ICUs. They prepared to use operating rooms as ICUs, um, which took a fair amount of, of work to do. Um, one of the things about COVID is that the patients, if they're in isolation, particularly if they are on ventilators, we like to have them in what we call a negative pressure room so that the pressure inside the room is less than the pressure outside the room so that nothing in the room blows out. The thing it would suck in, suck in gas from the hallway as opposed to the other direction. And so um, getting enough of those negative pressure rooms for intubated, ventilated, COVID positive patients um, was a huge undertaking. Um, and I, our hospital did a very good job. They also did an excellent job of providing personal protective equipment or PPE for us. Um, so that I think that although the job was compelling and difficult, we were never overwhelmed like some of the places that we saw in New York City. Um, I will have to say though, I have, as I said, I've been doing this job for pretty close to 40 years and have intubated a lot of people who have respiratory failure um, and they are, those other patients, those non-COVID patients in the past, always were obviously concerned because being intubated is really a market, marker of the gravity of disease. Mm -hmm. um, but these COVID patients are, are so afraid. The fear in their faces is just gripping. And, and of course we have all this, all this PPE, right? So we have several layers of masks and a gown and sometimes a hood with a, a machine that pumps fresh air, filtered air into ourselves and goggles and masks. And so the patients can barely see us. Um, and so the, the emotion of these patients and the fear is, is just so gripping. I've got to ask you a question because I, I was reading an article and I don't know if this terminology is the same in Chicago as it is in other cities, but I heard in New York that uh, some of these patients who came in and they were somewhat asymptomatic were referred to as walkie-talkies. They could still go around, still walk, still talk, still communicate. But uh, one of the articles I read was how quickly this could change. People would be able to talk, um, try to find out their prognosis, and, and then um, moments later, we're in a very different situation. Is is that something that's been kind of common with with COVID nineteen for people who are in the hospitals, or is there just a range and it's hard to um, hard to say that or generalize? So I would say the the people who have no symptoms wouldn't be in the hospital. So I really can't speak to that. Those people who are not in the hospital, not symptomatic, and are COVID positive, clearly can spread the disease, and that's that's really the danger, right? Because there's are a lot of people who could be spreading disease that way right now. The people who come into the hospital, um, most of them obviously don't get into the intensive care unit, but the people who do actually develop viral pneumonia do become very sick very quickly. Um, and so we would have uh, morning and afternoon um, COVID rounds so that we could keep track of people who might be of concern, who need would need to be in, uh, I almost said invited, transferred to the intensive care unit. Um, and for the patients in the intensive care unit who might need to be intubated, that means placing a breathing tube and then be put on a ventilator. The, um, 
the uh, interesting thing is that the, the patients who, who did have these very rapid courses uh, probably also had a very um, intense inflammatory response, very high temperatures. Um, so there were sort of two populations of people, one that really had a very rapid downhill course and the others who maybe by day five of their symptoms started to have some evidence of viral pneumonia and ventilatory failure. Uh, doctor, I'm going to ask you this. So, so obviously across the country and across the world, this was taken very seriously. Economies were shut down. People were told to stay at home. In the matter of a couple of weeks, we've seen um, what should have been uh, kind of a gradual opening, at least in the scheme of things, um, kind, kind of explode with the protests, with everything else going on in the world. I heard this uh, in a press conference that the virus doesn't care what else is going on in the world. The virus is going to continue to operate the way it's going to operate. What is the level of concern with yourself and people in the medical community about the um, the amount of people kind of coming together throughout these protests or because it's outside, is it less of a concern? I, I mean, what are you guys in the medical community viewing with this? So the, the, the fundamental answer is we are scared to death. Hmm. Um, wow. That is, that is, I think that is a very powerful statement that you just said there. You guys are scared to death. You being in the medical field for so long, I cannot believe that, you know, you, you would come out and say something like that, but, I, I totally feel you. Why why would you say it's such a powerful statement? Why are you guys scared to death about this? So the the good news is that most of this is going on outside uh, because as um, I think Raj said that the um, the transmission outside where there's wind and so forth mm -hmm. probably is, is less likely than if you're indoors. Proximity is huge, right? The, we, we're seeing people not staying six feet away from each other, either by choice or by force. Mm. Um, and wearing masks is important. So on, in a normal situation where you're not crowded, masks pr probably can prevent up to 99% of transmission if both parties wear them. Um, and so the places where people are wearing masks, that's great. And everybody has to do what they need to do. Um, but there are a lot of people very close together out there um, who are not wearing masks and who are very close together. And yes, the, the virus is completely, uh, has, pays no, no mind to whoever people are. People are people. So um, totally non-discriminatory. <laughs> Uh, in terms of infection. So let me let me um, ask you this, if I could just um, uh, just uh, intercede for a qu quite a quick second, just interrupt here. Um, I I'm concerned about the police officers who are out there, obviously the paramedics, people like Jeremy, myself in the media covering these things. And I'm just wondering like, um, and of course the protesters themselves, how often should people who are engaging in, in either coverage or, or making sure that these events are happening safely, be kind of checking themselves, self-monitoring themselves for the uh, the COVID-19. Uh, is that something uh, that should be done on a frequent, regular basis? What's advised? So when we when we check in for work, we get our temperature is taken on the way into the building every single day, okay. and we are asked if we have symptoms. And so, um, I mean, a self-check for your own self: Do you have symptoms? Do you have a cough or runny nose? Have you lost your sense of taste? Um, are you feeling short of breath? Um, and so if you don't have any of those symptoms and you don't have a fever, 
again, you could have been infected and be asymptomatic. Um, and there are some people who get infected and never have symptoms. The only way to know if you actually have the virus is to get a nasal swab. I heard that um, thing is uh, somewhat uh, uncomfortable. Someone was kind of showing me how that went. And I heard that that almost goes back to the end of the navel uh, cavity where it reaches the mouth. Is that true? Or was he just trying to frighten me a little bit? And I heard I had a nasal swab several years ago for an entirely different reason. And the, the ENT doctor had to like back me up against a wall because I, it was like, I kept backing away. It's really uncomfortable. And it, and it does go straight back, right? You, everybody thinks their nose cavity goes like up towards the eye, but really the, the passageway to the back of the throat is straight back. And so they stick it straight back until it stops. Wow. And that's the nasopharynx, right? They talk about nasopharyngeal swab. That's where it is. And it's, uh, it's pretty uncomfortable. Yeah. Okay, so <laughs> this is this is a bit uh, concerning to me because I, I'm I'm sitting here listening to this while I'm also like engaging in numerous conversations online. They're asking questions about um, you know how what we kind of started out with. How what is your suggestion or what is your guidance towards um, the people that are out on the street right now protesting? Um, what is the two or the three things that they should really be vigilant about? Just remembering. Wear a mask, stay six feet away from people if you possibly can, and wash your hands often and do not touch your face. So that's four, sorry. Um, <laughs> I, I think I heard Jeremy, were you about to ask something as well? And just for our listeners, yeah, I, we have Jeremy Ross, CBS2, who's on, uh, on the call as well, and I, I wanna give Jeremy an opportunity to speak. So Chris, it, uh, it sounds to me like the guidance overall is, is that if, if you are in a group Perhaps you are doing your best to practice social distancing. You might be wearing a mask. The guidance is keep self-monitoring. If you believe Always. you have symptoms, if you perhaps are running a temperature, you're starting to think, hey, maybe something might not be right, then it's time to go get the test. Not necessarily because you might have been protesting with others run on out uh, sort of um, preemptively. So it's kind of, if you have symptoms, then go to step two, get the swab. Is that yes. sort of the uh, guidance? Yeah, of most of most most of the healthcare facilities will not test you if you are not symptomatic and you don't have a you have a fever. So, um, and and if you are curious whether you can get a test or not, the best way to do is to call. Um, most of the places have hotlines that you can find online. Um, to see if they'll test you, but my my guess is that unless you're symptomatic, um, they won't test you. The, the exception to that is if you have someone in your immediate household or with whom you are sheltering who is positive, then they might test you even if you're not symptomatic. Gotcha. And when you consider, and, and like what you said a few moments ago about you're seeing the protests and as a medical professional, you're worried. Yes. Let me ask this, are you more worried about what you're seeing now or the possibility of this upcoming fall when it is speculated because of flu season and the time when viruses like this could blossom once again, for lack of a better word, which is more concerning, the fall so, season or what you're seeing now? So it, it's, it's actually two different areas of concern. So right now, the people who are um, engaging in crowded activities 
Um, and that, that would be the police, the, the press, the protesters. Um, they, if, if they're going to get infected from something that they do today, it's probably going to show up in the next 10 to 14 days. So the next couple of weeks, I think, are going to tell us the story of what has happened as a result of people coming out of their shelter um, in masses. And I'm just going to jump in here. If you're listening and you were like, uh, who is that guy with the excellent <laughs> questions who just came in here and knew the apt way to kind of elicit that information? It's because he is a reporter by training and a reporter by profession. If you recognize the voice, you probably do from CBS to Chicago. That's Jeremy Ross. If you're watching this online, you're seeing his picture. He's going to be joining us right after the commercial break. We're going to talk to him about his experiences covering the protests. And we've talked to a lot of people about just um, we've covered protests in the city, but something has been fundamentally different about this protest in general and, and the scope of how far it's gone across the country. So that's something that we definitely want to talk about. And we want to continue our conversation with Dr. Uh, Chris as well. Sorry, you, yeah. you wanted to say Just something? make sure that you guys call in to the number that's listed for um, WCPT 820, and we will put you right through. And you guys can even ask the questions yourself. So we have two amazing professionals on here. Um, let's cut over to uh, a, a, quick, a quick commercial break, Paul. Yep, and then we'll be right back with you guys in a couple minutes here. This is Lewis Kyra from GWC Injury Lawyers. Now that cannabis is legal in Illinois, an understanding of the law and the risks associated with ingesting cannabis is critically important. Under the Cannabis Act, you can legally ingest marijuana only in a very limited number of places, not in public, not on government or school premises, and not even in your own condo or apartment if your landlord has a no smoking policy. A positive test is potentially lethal to your rights in three key areas, employment, work injuries, and driving. So if your employer has a zero tolerance drug and alcohol policy, you can be terminated if you fail a drug test, even though your cannabis consumption was legal. If you're hurt on the job, test positive for cannabis, the legal presumption is that your accident was caused in part because of the cannabis and your workers' compensation rights can be totally denied. DUI laws have not changed. Impaired means impaired. And a DUI due to cannabis or alcohol can ruin your career. If you want to indulge in legal THC before you ingest, Read up on your rights at gwclaw.com. Megan Financial is an independent retirement and financial services firm dedicated to the working men and women of organized labor. Megan provides straightforward, custom-fit financial advice and specializes in defined benefit and defined contribution pension plans, as well as participant and retiree health and welfare benefits. Megan Financial has the knowledge and experience to navigate the union number through all phases of life. Call 708-444-1090. Securities and advisory services offered through Satera Advisors, LLC, member FINRA, SIPC, a broker-dealer, and registered investment advisor. Satera is under separate ownership from any other named entity. Office location at 5321 South 94th Avenue, Orland Park, Illinois, 60462. If you're just joining us, you're joining Sara Sadat and Raza Siddiqui on Life, Love, and the Grind. We have two very, um, very great guests today that we're really looking forward to getting to. We talked to Dr. Chris Stock, MD from Northwestern Hospital. Um, you heard a little from Jeremy Ross in the earlier segment, but let's get to him this segment. Jeremy is a reporter with CBS2 Chicago. And Jeremy, we want to find out what's going on in your world right now. 
the coverage in the last couple of months has been something extraordinarily different and posing challenges that we as journalists haven't seen for quite some time. What's it been like? It, it's been uh, it's been extraordinarily difficult. And uh, I will tell you that newsrooms across the country have had to adapt in a hurry. And in some cases, uh, from all the terrible scenarios, picked pick the worst case scenario to go with, which sounds like it's gloom and doom, and in some cases has been, but we are doing our best with everything that uh, the environment has served up to us, the stories have served up to us. And you know, I will tell you, taking a step back, there has not been, if I recall correctly, a day that, that my employer, CBS2, has not sent out uh, some sort of communication asking how we're doing, reminding us about security and safety on an ongoing basis and making sure that number one, that we are as safe as possible covering things that are inherently not 100% safe. So it's been a very difficult balancing act. Well, and I'll tell you this, it's fundamentally changed the way we have kind of done things. If you watch broadcasts now, you're seeing weather people reporting from the comfort of their living room. Sarah Sadat, myself, Sean Allen, we used to always go to the radio station. We've been doing that remotely. You've kind of seen some sort of a, um, a spreading out of resources to make sure that people are doing this safely. So in a matter of time, broadcasters, television, radio, newspapers even, have had to kind of reinvent what they've done but still work to a capacity they haven't done before, just in terms of getting all that news covered. How's that been like, Jeremy? It's It's been incredibly challenging. And we've had multiple bizarre circumstances that, that have clashed, uh, you know, as part of trying to uh, cover news. What you just talked about was the implications of, of COVID-19 and doing our best to keep all our employees, all, all our coworkers, safe and sound. So we try to utilize technology as much as possible. You've often seen now more than ever video chats, particularly Zoom chats, becoming part of regular broadcast TV nationally and locally. And there was a amazing learning curve to how to incorporate that in our everyday reporting. So far, uh, journalists across the Chicago area and beyond have done an excellent job doing that because if you are interviewing someone from your apartment or outside, uh, practicing certainly more than six feet of social distancing, if, if that's the case, uh, you're getting what you need and, you know, obviously maximizing your ability to stay safe. So that's an example of technology that we've all had to adapt to and have incorporated it. And so much so that people see that now and say, oh, that's totally normal. And I will tell you, goodness, three, four months ago, that was kind of a you know a worst case scenario uh you know you're not able to get out there in person okay fine video chat now you're seeing that almost every day uh going forward well we were we were yeah exactly until the world kind of changed and and mandated that we get out there and tell the stories of people who are very passionately and and vigorously trying to tell their point of view what happened i i I interrupted you but i wanted to paint the kind of the time frame of the fact that what we decided to do for safety was kind of turned on its head in a matter of a couple of days. Yeah, absolutely, because you can't possibly do do Zoom interviews when you have thousands of people, in some cases tens of thousands of people, rallying on the streets of Chicago and across the United States. You have to get out there. So getting back to the comment that I made earlier of 
you know, you only have bad choices considering there's a global pandemic going out there. Let's select the least bad choice. And, and so what happened was we, we did our best taking the most current health information about, hey, where are the risks of this pandemic? Uh, and how do we apply them to the unfortunate you know, problem of you have to be in or near crowds, which health-wise is not advisable. So that has meant wearing a mask whenever possible, wearing a mask if we do go into uh, some sort of uh, sheltered area or even, you know, for instance, the garage uh, of my station, you're always masked up. When you're outside, you're always masked up when possible. You're interviewing people from as great a distance as possible, but you cannot always be six feet away from someone when you're covering peaceful protests, when you're covering, like I did last weekend, major unrest in the city of Chicago. You do the best job you can with you know, the uh, hand you're dealt. And you know, so far we have done that as safe as possible. And, and like the doctor said in the previous uh, segment, we may find out how safe that's going to be you know, from about 10 to 14 days uh, exposure time. So we're all keeping our fingers crossed. We're hoping for the best. We have had guidance from medical professionals and station management. But, you know, there's no great plan. There is the best of the worst case scenarios. And that's really what we've experienced. I mean, we've gone from a situation, and I've talked to a couple of different uh We'll call the, I call them shops. There's stations, TV stations around the city that they're all doing things very differently. Some of them have been told, you know what, everyone in different vehicles, reporters, photographers, security mm -hmm. go in different vehicles. And, and now some are saying, you know, for the safety of keeping everyone together, everyone should be traveling in one vehicle. Yeah. It just seems like, um, I, I mean, let's face it, we've never really experienced anything like this. So everyone's mm -hmm. trying to uh, trying to play out what they think is the best situation. It comes down to communicating and finding best practices, but you'll see right now, there's no set policy in how these are being no. done. Um, how, how do you feel, Jeremy, that that you've been able to interact with your coworkers and work as a team when for the last month and a half, we've kind of been separate and doing things in a different way? We are getting guidance and we're learning about, you know, the health issues and safety real time. And that sounds like a catchphrase, but it is the truth. In terms of health guidance, we, we were made more aware that while it is still possible, surface uh, contact and transmission of COVID-19, while still remains a real threat, is not as severe as initially thought. And those water droplets, people yelling, singing, screaming, transmission that way of COVID-19 appears to be more of a major threat. So it seems to me that uh, people across Chicagoland and, and those across the country have said, you know, listen, let's keep those masks on for purposes of covering unrest, for purposes of covering protests. Safety is in numbers. So we get that information, we get that guidance, and we start sort of um, veering into the lane of, hey, let's make sure we're out there in three-person teams no, it's not ideal, but it gives us the safety to have eyes over our crews, watching folks who might be near the camera, behind the camera, near the reporter, around the reporter, who might not be up to a lot of good. And I say that because more so than in recent memory, major journalist associations have been coming out. Uh, I believe the ACLU uh, filed suit recently about 
attacks involving reporters, uh, not only by uh, by protesters, uh, folks who might be uh, you know proceeding uh, to do to do harm and property damage, but uh, in some cases around the country of, of law enforcement officers uh, that have been assaulting reporters, and so having that safety in numbers is critically important. Just making sure that it's not a huge group because of COVID-19 uh, is something that we've been sort of uh, switching to right now. So again, I've said it before and I'll say it again. Uh, none of these solutions are, are, are great. None of these solutions are 100% effective. But you start getting towards the best case scenario of a bunch of terrible options. And, and it's a kind of an evolving process where we have to rediscover how we do things. And Jeremy, you and I collaborated. We also have another platform, a podcast that Sarah said I, and I do that yourself, Usher Qureshi, uh, joined us on, which is Media Essential Workers. And we actually discussed this. We talked about some of the safety issues um, intermingled with some of the health issues. I mean, we what were some of the tips we learned there? Make sure to identify yourself uh, to the police officers. Be incognito sometimes in terms of um, not being targeted by the protesters because we're really sometimes in a situation where um, we're either on very good terms with everyone involved or people view us as a target. So those were some of the things. And if anyone's interested, I do encourage you to subscribe to Media Central Workers and look at that interview because it was very, um, at least for me, thought provoking. Sarah, what do you think? You're not in the field, but I know you helped uh, kind of deal with it. What do you think of the discussion? Honestly, Reza, half the time I'm just worried whether my husband's going to come home. Um, you know, there, there are certain things and, and how he's going to come home, right? So the roads have been blocked. The The areas to get into the city and getting out of the city has been a challenge. Um, even just being in front of the police line or behind the police line and you know, I'm asking him to share his location with me. I'm doing all Which is all I husbands know is not anything you want to do during oh, yeah. any yeah. circumstance. So uh, that's been oh, a yeah. source of angst between worry, us, but I think it's probably worry, good sweetheart. practice. Your, your wife is in IT. She has much <laughs> yep. more tabs on you than you actually think. But <laughs> no, but, but at the end of the day, this is what I see and this is what I feel. And, you know, anybody that's um, a spouse of any of the essential workers that are going out there and bracing this pandemic, this un heard of um, show of support for Black Lives Matter. I mean, this is this is amazing to kind of see out there, but you guys are the ones who are covering it and you guys are the ones who are dealing with it on the front lines. So all of us spouses out there, we just want you guys to be safe and we just want you to be secure. Well, Jeremy, I'm going to ask you about this and I'm going to bring the doctor in on this conversation as well. I watched your coverage. I think it was, I forget if it was Saturday or Sunday, but it was just phenomenal. You were right in the middle of kind of everything going on. And you were covering it like you always cover these things in the middle of it, reporting what you see. Was there any level of concern about COVID when that was going on? Or do you become very, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Very focused, very um, uh, tunnel vision in terms of what you're doing. Because obviously you had now two things to kind of uh, keep cognizant of. You know, I, I would probably say we had about 90 things to keep cognizant of, uh, you know, particularly on Saturday, which is kind of what you're referring to. Uh, you know, I will tell you that one of the things that we learned uh, from previous discussions was the concept of situational awareness. That's not a term, uh, you know, police officers will bring that up very frequently. And, you know, those who kind of specialize in uh, safety tactics will say that. That's not a term to take lightly. Situational awareness is something that, that you have to have 
whether you're a news crew reporting during, you know, societal unrest, or if you're walking to the CTA late at night, uh, hopping on the L. And that's just as simple as being aware of your surroundings. And I will tell you that that was the difference between us being able to perform our task, doing it well, and everyone getting home safely and not. And, uh, you know, to your initial question, I was sort of what we were doing and how we were trying to keep safe. You know, listen, this is a big city, the city of Chicago, you know, depending on the blocks you're on, the time of day, uh, you know, you're never gonna have 100% safety. But there's a lot of things you can do to increase those odds substantially. So what we did was we were covering a fire, for instance. We were completely across the other side of the street on Michigan Avenue. And for those of you familiar uh, with Michigan Avenue, just south of the river, that's about five or six lanes of traffic. Uh, if you include that sort of um, planted media, media, uh, uh, median in the middle there. So we're probably about 80 yards away from where a fire was taking place. Some people would say, you know what, that's a pretty decent distance. We felt safe and we followed our gut on that. I was also with a photojournalist and another photojournalist at the time as well. The other photojournalist who was not operating the camera, when we saw the fire, I told him, do us a favor, call 911 because we, we have to report a dangerous situation above and beyond just telling people about it on the news. He did that. We did it live on air and we got the fire department there and, you know, hopefully helped cut back uh, on the damage involved in what is likely what was likely an arson to begin with because uh, people were looting uh, the store previously. So we were we were far enough away uh, from any type of that danger. We wanted to make sure that the proper authorities knew about the inherent danger. And it was if anyone in our group felt that they were not safe, we were out of there. So it was a team effort. It was making sure situationally that we are okay. And it was almost a democratic sort of vote. If anyone felt that they were threatened, felt that things weren't okay, we were out of there. So that's kind of, that's, that was our safety plan and it worked well for a Saturday. It worked well for a Sunday. Wow, that's, that's great. And, and I gotta tell you, so uh, doctor, I, I'm wondering about this with the safety plans, like the best laid plans, um, in certain situations may not necessarily hold or, or have to probably be reevaluated in other situations. Now they did what they needed to do with the with the kind of scene threats that were out there. We still got a virus that, that that's spreading. What are the precautions that people need to be somewhat cognizant of this? Not to say that this crew wasn't because I'm sure they all had their masks, they were being socially distant, yep. but what are you telling um, doctor, uh, your friends who are first responders, your friends who are having to be out there and kind of deal with the situation. This wasn't a gradual um, coming together of our society. This was, we were all isolated. Now we're all collectively together. So I think, I think Jeremy hit the nail on the head. Um, we, we know what we need to do to be as safe as we can. Um, and in the situations that that he finds himself in and all of the press do, uh, you can't exercise all those precautions. And so I, I agree that you only can do the best you can do. There really are no other things that we have yet either to prevent or treat COVID. And so these measures that we take, the mask, the distance um, and so forth, really are the, the, the only things we can do. Um, I, I do agree also with Jeremy that the 
notion of transmission through contacting surfaces is not as um, much of an issue as we initially thought, but um, singing and screaming um, definitely get those droplets out there further than they do just from quiet talking. Um, so yeah, yeah, my hat's off to the press. I don't know how you guys do it because our environment is very controlled, right? We we know if we have to go in to take care of someone, we will don our PPE. And in fact, we are told that we don't rush in, we don the PPE, we take care of the patient, and then we very cautiously take it off or dot it. Um, 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 sorry, I'm sorry, you had something? Yeah, so Chris, I was just wondering, um, are you noticing this in other wings of the Northwestern Hospital, not just a critical care unit? Are you noticing patients coming in uh, for at the OB area or the gynae area, any of the other areas with um, these symptoms? They're coming in for elective surgery and um, they're being told, they're being sent back hey, no, um, you know, you're testing positive for COVID. You need to reschedule in, you know, the next two weeks. Are you noticing things like that in, in your field of work and Northwestern? So um, every anyone who comes to Northwestern for an operation or a procedure um, that would include labor um, gets COVID tested. Um, the people who are COVID negative and are going to have elective procedures um, COVID negative and elective procedures go on to have their procedures. If they're COVID positive and they're having elective procedures, they are told to wait 14 days. Um, if they have an emergency, let's say someone comes with an appendicitis, um, they're COVID positive. Um, we have specially outfitted operating rooms with um, that have, we turn them to negative pressure. We have a place to don and off the um, type of PPE that actually has a built-in motor that you carry on your waist um, so that the the PPE is a little more sophisticated because when we intubate and extubate and, and provide anesthesia, both the anesthesia and some of the procedures gener generate aerosols in the room. Mm -hmm. um, and so we take precautions for that. Um, similarly, in the OB area, clearly women nine months ago didn't know they were going to be dealing with this. Um, and so the, again, the COVID patients are isolated in negative pressure rooms um, and cared for by a separate team of people um, to try and literally isolate the, the two sets of healthcare providers as well as patients. And Chris, I was, just, I was just curious, this is Jeremy from CBS. As you walk around outside, say over the last week as either a medical professional or just a regular person walking outside, are you seeing people taking this seriously, particularly over the last week or so? Are you seeing people wear masks and just, you know, yay or nay, does that help with your confidence going forward or does that make you even more worried? So I think for the most part, um, at least in the communities where I go and, and I go very much places other than to work in the grocery store, right? Because I've been pretty good about sheltering in place. Um, but I do walk for exercise and I or run. And um, when I go out, I do see that people are wearing masks and that the stores have marks on the ground. And the grocery store in our area will only let a certain number of people into the store. So one Saturday I had to wait in, in a line with six foot markers to get into the store. And everybody is wearing a mask. So I would have to say by and large, people have been pretty good about wearing masks and social distancing, um, which makes me feel much better because 
I have seen firsthand how devastating this pestilence is. Um, and I think that's a good place to kind of um, cut to our commercial break. We have some commercials coming up, but one thing I did want to quickly say is, and we flashed this on our screen for our social media followers, is we've had several comments about uh, Jeremy and his work and, and, and people who are fans. So I think we're going to come back and do things a little differently. Jeremy, I'm going to put a little bit more of the burden on you. I, I kind of want you and the doctor to have a discussion going back and forth. Some of the questions you would ask her if you just had an opportunity to to just kind of talk about what's going on and maybe give you guys a chance to dialogue. And we'll do that right after we get um, this message from Breaker Press. Life, Love and the Grind is proudly sponsored by Rich Lewandowski and our friends at Breaker Press, Chicagoland's top choice for union printing. We're a third generation family owned business that has been helping unions and political campaigns win since 1976. We've been involved in hundreds of winning elections and we get our printed materials to you on time and on budget every time. Whether you're running for the courthouse or the White House, we will take you from concept to design and from print to mail or your supporters' front yards. Breaker Press can help you reach the voters you need. Call Rich at 773-852-5733 or email rich at breakerpress.com. For all of your political printing needs, visit us at breakerpress.com. Breaker Press makes great buttons too. Um, again, media essential workers, uh, Jeremy was on talking with us earlier about that, but we're gonna do something a little bit differently. Usually, Sarah, myself, Sean asked the questions. We got a professional journalist here. Jeremy, I'm gonna hand the reins over to you. Take it from here, buddy. Yeah, it sounds good. I, 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 I am always interested in Chris's experiences certainly uh, during this era of COVID-19. I guess one of my questions would be, as someone who is on the front lines, the average COVID case that you are seeing, uh, would you describe it as more severe, less severe, or about the same, again, the average case, than maybe some of the cases you were seeing in March? Uh, so that's a hard question to answer because most of the patients that I directly care for are people in the intensive care unit. So just by definition, they're severely ill. There are fewer of them. Um, right now, we we did um, come down out of the, I think we at, at our peak had 68 or 70 people in intensive care units. Last week, we had 40. Um, and that is consistent with the, the number of inpatients patient COVID positive patients. So it's important to understand that the patients that, that we see in the hospital are only a fraction of all of the people who are COVID positive. Um, so the people who are very sick are still very sick, but there are fewer of them. A lot of what is reported and not necessarily a headline is the number of people who contract COVID-19 end up, most of them, being fine. We, we talk so often about those who die, those who you see in intensive care, um, any contact with, with former patients and any thoughts or I guess uh, things that you would wanna say about someone who may today, tomorrow test positive, and at least statistics would say, in most cases, it is not a death sentence. Correct. So um, if, if you we look at the statistics or the data from Northwestern of the inpatients, that's COVID positive patients who are sick enough to be admitted, 
96% of them are surviving. So that's, I mean, 4% mortality rate is still high, but that's, these are just hospitalized patients. So if you take all COVID patients, probably one to 2% of people, maybe 3% are, are probably gonna end up dying. So yes, not an automatic death sentence. Um, and even of the patients who are admitted into the ICU and are ventilated, their survival rate is close to 90%. So not a, not a death sentence by any stretch of the imagination. Now these data are quite different than what we saw coming out of New York City. And I think in large part that may be because our health systems were never overwhelmed in the city of Chicago the way they were in New York. Well, I'm going to jump in here with a question real quick. Sure. Uh, doctor, do you think that, um, that that might change given the nature of these protests and a large amount of people coming together? Or is it just too big of an unknown to make any sort of determination with that? We saw the mayor um, and the governor kind of back down on having to use McCormick for, for uh, kind of a bigger mass casualty type situation. But again, this is when we were at a stay-at-home order. Do you think that's going to fundamentally change what's happening right now? Well, that is what I'm worried about. Uh, we're kind of doing an experiment of sorts to find out. Um, and I can't predict, I don't think anyone can predict. Um, we know what the pattern has been in the past of the this is a very transmissible disease. Um, and so I hope I'm wrong, but I predict that in the next couple of weeks, we're gonna see another surge. All right. And I was just curious um, when you talk about this essentially being an experiment, and I think that that's a pretty apt way of describing it. Is there a number, perhaps percentage, that you say to yourself, if we are at this number or below, that experiment is proving successful, meaning that people are taking the precautions necessary, wearing masks, social distancing as much as possible, and we only hit, for instance, a 10% increase. Is there a number that you would say, speculating, of course, that maybe the experiment is a success or a number contrary that it would be a, a complete failure and we're in trouble? Um, so right now, the hospitals who are doing elective procedures are required to have 20% surge capacity. That is, mm. we can't fill our fill our our operating rooms, our space, our business more than 80% in case there is a surge. Um, so there, so there were two experiments we were doing and they're gonna confound each other's data. One experiment was getting into phase three and wearing masks and doing social distancing and, and exercising those kind of precautions. The thing that's gonna confound that is the fact that we've had people gathering in large groups and not wearing masks and not maintaining social distance. Um, and so, it's really, uh, you know, we, we're not going to find out if phase three worked or not because of the of the, um, the protests and the large social gathering. Would you expect a 10% spike uh, in maybe uh, future COVID cases, perhaps over the next week? I'm just curious if there's a number that you, you would have in mind or some of your associates are kind of bracing for. Mm. Not, not, I'm not an epidemiologist or an infectious disease specialist, so I, that would just be... That would be a wild guess. Okay. So I'm not going <laughs> to speculate on that one. Sorry. Neither are we. <laughs> you know what? I might venture, I guess. Wait, Sarah's grabbing me and telling no, me not no. to venture. No, no, guess. no guesses. <laughs> no guesses on this. And and if yes. we don't guess towards this, this would be probably a best thing for all of us. We, we hope 
that we don't see a surge of numbers. We hope that, you know, we continue to progress on and build our economy back to where it was before. I know it's going to be a long and a slow process, but I think we will eventually get there. And definitely there are some legislations that are going in, into place. Um, there are rules and laws that are going to be put into place. Uh, President Obama kind of came up at, with uh, eight different points that, you know, all of our local mayors um, who employ our police departments can embrace and take on just to be more vigilant out there for, um, for Black Lives Matter. I mean, this is, there are good things that are happening. And I totally believe that, you know, being um, an Indian and from a culture that believes in, um, beliefs in silent protest, being part of the Gandhi movement, right? There is so much uh, support and so much strength that comes from just going out there in masses and making sure that your voices are heard, even just physical face representation, even just saying something in this time. And I really appreciate both of you guys for joining us today. Um, I think this was a very eye-opening um, conversation that you know we, we went through and Part of me actually feels a little bit safer knowing that my husband will go out there and come back home okay in one piece. So I really appreciate you guys today. Yes, thank you so much for weighing in. And again, we want to remind um, everyone listening that the weather is getting good. Uh, we're in phase three, so we're able to move around with a little bit more um, freedom. Make sure to support those local small businesses. Make sure to go out and and the staples of your community, which have kind of um, identified and become a landmark of your community, make sure you're out there supporting them, letting them know that you care about them and that they've went through a trial, but you're there to support them. And again, I would be remiss if I didn't thank the small businesses that have taken a chance on us, Breaker Press, GWC, Medjin Financial. I mean, th there's a lot of small businesses out there that were hurting just like we are, and it's um, a good opportunity to go out there and, and, and support them as well. Sarah, anything else you'd like to say? No, just, again, uh, listen to what the doctor said, you guys. <laughs> listen to what the doctor said. So put a, mace, uh, put a mask on make sure that you are practicing social distancing. And when you see um, when you see one of our essential workers out there, really commend them and thank them for the invaluable service that they're providing us, giving us eyes into the movements that are happening all across the nation and all across the world at this point, standing up for less represented individuals that are out there, for people that have gone through a lot of, um, a lot of hatred. So let's turn this into positivity. Let's come out of it on the other side with some really good rules and regulations in place and just being safe and practice social distancing. Thank you again to our guests, CBS's Two Chicago's Jeremy Ross and Dr. Um, Christine Stock from Northwestern. We really appreciate you being with us. This is uh, Sarah Sadat. I'm Raza Siddiqui on Life, Love, and the Grind. Look forward to seeing you again next week, same time, three o'clock on Sunday, and keep an eye out for uh, Media Central Workers where we're going to be doing blogs as relevant as well, but look forward to seeing you then. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you everyone, great show.